The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So there were fewer meetings. In fact, there were probably no meetings about, you know, how many should we put here? How many should we put there? uh, How many helicopters can we have in Syria? And as a consequence of that, one of the ironies is what Trump really did was he executed the Obama strategy, but sometimes more efficiently than Obama himself, because the rules of engagement were not changed. I talked to lots of military commanders about it. There was no change in the rules of engagement from Obama to Trump. What did change was the degree of oversight in Washington, and that enabled the Pentagon and the military to make more decisions on their own, with one huge exception. On two occasions, Trump ordered U.S. troops out of Syria only to reverse himself, which was a degree of impulsiveness that created all sorts of obstacles in the final chapter of the campaign. I'm Matt Gluck, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 23rd, 2022. In 2014, as Islamic State insurgents took control of the Iraqi city of Mosul, President Barack Obama made the decision to send troops back to Iraq. Within five years, through the work of the United States and its partners, the organization was largely dismantled. What was the nature of the U.S. struggle against the Islamic State? Which decisions were instrumental to its success? And how did the U.S. coordinate with partners in the region? To discuss these issues, former Lawfare Associate Editor Bryce Clem spoke with Michael Gordon, a national security correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, about his new book, Degrade and Destroy, Gordon's fourth book on Iraq. They covered a range of topics, including the Status of Forces Agreement, or SOFA, the Trump administration's counter-Islamic state strategy, and the challenges for journalists embedding with coalition forces. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 23rd, Michael Gordon on the U.S. War Against the Islamic State. Michael, I want to start, as you do in the book, with a legal issue. In 2011, the status of forces agreement between the U.S. and Iraq was set to expire at the end of that year. President Obama ultimately said the U.S. would pursue a new status of forces agreement, but only if it was approved by the Iraqi parliament. Let's start there, and that seems like a pretty technical issue. Why would that seemingly minor decision contribute in some ways to the rise of ISIS? Well, uh, a lot of factors contributed to the rise of ISIS, predominantly um, internal um, developments inside Iraq and sectarian tensions there. But uh, the SOFA uh, talks were uh, very important because they were key to maintaining an American military presence in the country. And that was necessary in order to keep mentoring the Iraqis and helping them better hold back um, this tide of insurgents that was uh, developing in the West and in Syria and in northern Iraq. What happened with the uh, SOFA talks was that during the Bush administration, President Bush's negotiators had successfully negotiated a SOFA agreement, which expired at the end of 2011. And the Bush administration did not insist that this agreement be endorsed by the Iraqi parliament. In fact, Ryan Crocker, who was the ambassador in Baghdad at the time, put that in writing and sent that to the American Congress. Well, when uh, President Obama took over, they did a review of Iraq policy, and they determined that if there was to be, first of all, that there was to be a new SOFA agreement, not merely uh, an extension of an old one, and that this new agreement would have to be passed 
by what was called the Council of Representatives or the Iraqi Parliament. And the Iraqis from the beginning, at least uh, Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki, saw that as a very high bar because he, in effect, would have to go to the parliament and make the case for keeping American troops in Iraq. And he styled himself as an Iraqi nationalist. And the parliament was filled with Sadrists and members who were susceptible to Iranian influence. It was going to be um, a difficult fight. And he made clear to the Americans that he was prepared to sign some sort of executive agreement, but he wasn't about to take the agreement to the parliament. And interestingly, there were some American officials at the time who agreed with that approach. In fact, Brett McGurk, who's now the uh, senior director on the National Security Council for the Biden administration for the Middle East, had been brought in to work on the SOFA issue by the uh, Obama administration. And he also didn't think it was wise to insist on approval by the parliament. But Jim Jeffrey, who was the ambassador at the time, did. At any rate, that was the deal breaker. In the end, Maliki wasn't willing to take the agreement to the parliament. He was prepared to sign some sort of uh, less formal executive agreement, and that wasn't sufficient for the Obama administration, which was insisting that if American troops were going to stay, it had to have buy-in not merely by the prime minister, but by the legislative body. And that failure to reach an agreement, as you write in the book, didn't really stop a lot of people who were in the U.S. government from trying to figure out different ways to aid the Iraqi military. One way was the CIA's plan. David Petraeus, who was CIA director at the time, and you you write about how he came up with a, a plan, essentially, to, to try and, and help the Iraqi military. Why did Prime Minister Maliki sort of back out of that plan? And what did that reveal about U.S.-Iraq relations at that time? Well, first off, the failure to secure a new SOFA was a, a massive setback for efforts to stabilize Iraq. And the reason was it meant that all American troops had to leave by the end of uh, 2011. And that meant that plans, which had been drawn up and were somewhat elaborate to maintain 3,500 troops in country with another rotating 1,500 troops for a total of 5,000 to mentor and train and aid the Iraqi forces help them further develop, that all came to an end. And this was despite assessments by the U.S. military that the Iraqis' military was still a work in progress. In fact, there was a briefing by a, a senior American military official in Iraq that pointed to a number of capability gaps, as they were called, on the part of the Iraqi military. So it was well understood by the Iraqi military and by the U.S. military that Iraq's forces were still in need of training. But in the SOFA basically meant that had to be interrupted. Despite that, there were those who were looking for ways to ameliorate the problem. And at the CIA, uh, David Petraeus, who had been a former commander in Iraq, thought there could be a covert solution to this. Yes, all U.S. forces would be gone, but you could have a small number of troops who would be covertly deployed under the auspices of the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad and who would help the Iraqis decipher intelligence and plan operations, uh, what uh, the U.S. calls enablers. And Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton supported him in this effort. And in fact, uh, David Petraeus got the endorsement of President Obama before proposing this to the Iraqis. So he proposed it to uh, Prime Minister Maliki when Maliki came to Washington in uh, December 2011. And he later went there to pitch it in person and see if he could nail it down. And Maliki said all the right things, but he never quite came through. And what Petraeus was looking for was a letter requesting this support. Now, you can only speculate as to why Maliki didn't do it. One possibility is that he'd be taking a bit of a political risk at home if this ever became public or became known to the authorities in Tehran in return for a relatively modest gain. He wasn't getting 10,000 American troops, including some who would participate in combat against uh, Sunni insurgents. He was getting a small cadre of uh, CIA paramilitary officers. But for whatever reason, 
Uh, Maliki was very protective of his image of being the strong man who could handle problems on his own. And he apparently didn't want to take a risk in uh, jeopardizing this carefully crafted image by signing on to this agreement. Let's move to ISIS's rapid territorial expansion from really that point in, in 2011 through to September 2014, I believe, when ISIS reached its really territorial sort of maximum. What did that fighting, ISIS's fight against the Iraqi army, reveal about how dependent the Iraqi army was on the U.S. military? Well, first off, ISIS's expansion began in 2013, and there were probably seeds of it in 2012. What What is ISIS? ISIS is an evolution of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was the same nemesis the U.S. fought uh, during its occupation of that country. And in 2013, um, this group carried out a number of brazen uh, prison breaks in Iraq, in Taji and Abu Ghraib, and sprung a lot of their comrades so their ranks were able to swell. They also profited off of the civil war in neighboring Syria, where lots of jihadists were uh, flooding to that country, and they were able to repurpose many of them for uh, service in the caliphate. So ISIS was a pretty strong uh, foe uh, by uh, 2013. In fact, it was recognized as such. Uh, Iraq's foreign minister came to Washington in August 2013 to ask the Pentagon for help in fighting ISIS. U.S. military officers made an unpublicized visit to Iraq in February 2014, and they saw that Iraq's best forces, the counterterrorism service, were having a very difficult time contending with ISIS, which was by that time um, moving into Fallujah. So it was uh, clear that the Iraqi forces had disintegrated a bit without American training and that they had deteriorated in part because uh, Maliki had politicized his own uh, security forces by appointing loyal but incompetent commanders. And ISIS was uh, gaining strength. And it all came together in June of 2014 when ISIS stormed into Mosul and the Iraqi forces there were routed in a matter of days. So eventually the U.S. decides to get involved through a strategy called the buy with and through approach. I think a lot of people who maybe followed this campaign against ISIS probably heard that a lot. Seems like a nice thing to say in front of a congressional committee that were fighting ISIS with a buy with and through approach. What did that look like in practice? And what were, what were U.S. advisors interactions like on the ground? Well, understandably, President Obama was not uh, happy about having to get involved militarily again in Iraq. Remember, he had campaigned for the presidency on a platform of bringing what was called a responsible end to that conflict. And when all U.S. forces left at the end of 2011, President Obama and some of his uh, top aides in the White House, to include uh, Tony Blinken, had celebrated this as an achievement. The U.S. had ended the war and Exited its forces had exited and uh, Iraq was now stable. So now he was faced with the unwelcome prospect of sending forces back. Well, he had two requirements for doing that. One, Maliki had to go. He wasn't about to send forces back unless there was a new uh, government in Baghdad that in, included a less sectarian um, prime minister. So that was requirement number one. And the second requirement was that whatever U.S. forces were sent back, we're not going to engage in ground combat. Now, as the campaign unfolded, there were exceptions made to that that were not publicized in Washington. But by and large, the concept was that Iraqi forces and Syrian forces would do the tough fighting in the ground and the U.S. would be advisors. And it was on that basis that President Obama sent forces back. And by, with, and through is a concept that's well known in the special forces community. And, and what it means is the war is going to be carried out by your partner forces with American and coalition help and through a legal and policy framework. It's a longstanding concept, but what happened in in this campaign, it was operationalized on a much, much grander and more ambitious scale. So initially, the counter-ISIS campaign sort of started out with a ton of restrictions. 
you just mentioned a few of them, you know, how difficult was it for U.S. advisors to operate with those restrictions? And what did some of those restrictions look like in practice? And, and how sort of absurd were they to the people on the ground? Well, they were understandable for, for an administration that was uh, reengaging in Iraq, but doing so reluctantly and very carefully. And at times, it seemed that the Obama administration was is worried about getting too deeply involved in the Middle East again, as it was about not having a, enough of an effect. So what happened is when the advisors returned, well, number one, they were initially restricted to operating with the confines of bases in Iraq. They didn't go into the field with Iraqi forces. Uh, they didn't have what was known as accompanying authorities. So they did their advising at a distance. It was a way to minimize the risk of American casualties, but it was not the most effective way of uh, mentoring the Iraqis uh, during the uh, Iraq war between 2003 and 2011. As a correspondent, I was with uh, several uh, teams of advisors who'd worked with it. Iraqi units in Anbar and in Nineveh province, and they went with the Iraqi forces because you have a better understanding of what's happening in the field. It's much easier to call in airstrikes, but this was an effort on the part of the White House to minimize uh, the risk of um, American casualties. They also imposed uh, some sort of strict troop caps, what was called force manning levels on the number of boots on the ground, bog numbers as they were called troops that could be in Iraq at any one time. And the military officers who were running the campaign at the time felt that this was too much of a constraint. And there were a lot of workarounds to get around these limits that, you know, if you brought in some people, sometimes you'd have to send some out to Kuwait so that you could stay within the ceiling. Or at other times, there was a, an understanding that troops were there on a temporary basis wouldn't be counted against these troop ceilings. So troops that would be there for a few months that wouldn't necessarily be subject to the force cap. But the uh, prohibition against sending advisors into the field and the troop caps uh, were constraining as far as the American uh, military commanders were concerned as they sought to take on an Islamic State army that was rampaging across uh, Western and Northern Iraq, and they had to be relaxed over time. And why were they relaxed, as you recount in the book, sh shortly before the battle for, for Mosul? Did someone you know, convince senior members of the Obama administration that it was necessary for U.S. troops to be on the battlefield? Well, what happened was, uh, as the campaign unfolded, and so uh, the fall of Mosul is in June of 2014, American advisors come back after that. The mission President Obama describes is to degrade and ultimately destroy ISIS. At first, there are constraints on the use of advisors. It was understood that those might have to be eased when you got to the toughest fight of all, which at that time uh, was retaking Mosul, but it certainly took a lot of time. And as uh, General McFarland, who was commander in uh, the summer of 2016, he was able to make the case for uh, sending advisors into the field with Iraqi military units at the battalion and brigade level. And this was endorsed by General Joe Votel, who was then the CENTCOM commander and was more forward-leaning than his predecessor, Lloyd Austin, now our Secretary of Defense. And so authority was given so that U.S. advisors could go with Iraqis at the battalion level when they crossed the Tigris River, which is an important preparatory step toward positioning himself south of Mosul. And there were other steps that were taken, too. Initially, uh, U.S. airstrikes were very tactical and constrained to areas that were really um, proximate to where Iraqi ground forces were. And the Air Force pushed for a campaign where they could carry out deeper strikes against ISIS economic targets, oil trucks, banks, uh, command and control leadership. And over time, they were allowed to do that as well. And so that was an important uh, change. And uh, one thing 
that I think led to a, a more flexible approach was a concern in Washington that the campaign was dragging on, that more needed to be done. And then there were uh, terrorist attacks in Paris in November of 2015. And I think that changed the attitude of President Obama and many of his top aides, because up to then they had thought of ISIS kind of like the Taliban, in the sense that they were a threat to the people of Iraq, but not necessarily capable of external terrorist operations abroad. Well, after the Paris attacks in uh, 2015, which were planned in Manbij, Syria by ISIS, uh, that changed the thinking in the White House. And they began to see ISIS more as Al-Qaeda, a terrorist group that could reach out and hurt people in the West. And that gave them more of a sense of urgency. And that sense of urgency resulted in a relaxation on the constraints on the use of advisors on the battlefield, although they were never really totally erased. I want to ask you more of a logistical question about reporting for this book. This is your fourth book on Iraq, and you had some challenges in terms of embedding with partner forces. In the past, you were, if I'm not mistaken, able to embed with U.S. military units and and follow them. But in this case, the Pentagon didn't allow you to do that. Why do you think that was? And what were some of the ways that you sort of worked around that? Well, my first three books I did with General Trainer, who's has passed away and was retired, three-star uh, Marine general who worked for the New York Times as their uh, military correspondent. And I worked for the New York Times too for my first three books, was there for 32 years all in all before I shifted to the Wall Street Journal. And this practice of embedding waxed and waned over various conflicts. And the way we always tried to do these books was to get as much information as one could from the battlefield. And there's no, no way to do that except but to be there. And then also to go around Washington and figure out what had happened in the various meetings in the NSC and the Pentagon and the State Department and fuse the efforts together to do any kind of competent military history. It's not enough to just get the battlefield drama, nor is it enough to just get the decision-making in Washington. You have to get both elements because they're really parallel universes and put them together. And sometimes there are a lot of disconnects between the understanding in Washington and what's actually happening in the battlefield. And by shuttling back and forth, uh, was able to pretty much report that out. Well, in the first war I covered, uh, Desert Storm, first Middle East war I covered, uh, they didn't have embedding. They didn't allow it at the time. They had a, a broken cool system. But I stayed uh, for weeks after, months really, I think, after that war and went with all the various Marine and Army units that were living in uh, Kuwait and southern Iraq and heard their stories where they were fresh. So it was the best one could do under the circumstances. In the second war, the invasion of Iraq and its occupation, one could see that war coming a mile away. So I positioned myself in the land war headquarters for that operation. And I got an inside view of how decisions were made. This was from my Cobra two book with general trainer and, um, and then stayed for months in Iraq and, as the insurgency began to gain traction and then came back to Washington. Well, in this fight against ISIS, which was formerly known as Operation Inherent Resolve, uh, the Pentagon uh, didn't allow embedding. And by the way, uh, they still don't. Uh, I tried to embed with the 82nd Airborne for their current operation, their current mission in Poland to deter Russian aggression and basically stand up for the alliance and uh, cope with any refugee flows that might occur as a consequence of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, and uh, the Pentagon ultimately did not allow me or anyone uh, to do that. I don't know whether the decision was made by Lloyd Austin or by uh, Jake Sullivan or by whom, but uh, no one's been allowed to embed with American forces in, in Europe, even though there's no combat going on there. But uh, it wasn't allowed in this instance. And uh, the argument was that, well, there weren't that many troops and uh, they didn't have enough public affairs officers to support the embedding even on a 
temporary or limited basis. But it, in the end, it was not really an impediment because the whole strategy was to work with partner forces, Iraqi and Syrian, and you could go with those forces. So I was able to go with the Kurdish Peshmerga when they took back Sinjar in November 2015. I was able to go with them when they opened up the Mosul campaign in the fall of 2016. I was able to go on a number of occasions with Iraq's counterterrorism service in West Mosul in April, and then again in June-July timeframe when for the climax uh, of that battle. And so you could get pretty close to the action with the partner forces, although it didn't come with the same degree of protection and assurance of medevac and all that that one would get if you were with uh, Western forces. And I did have uh, an opportunity, uh, even though it wasn't embedding, to travel on a couple of occasions uh, with some senior officers, uh, namely uh, General Steve Townsend, which led to me being unexpectedly in a council of war with the Iraqi prime minister and also with uh, then Colonel Pat Work, who was uh, one of the main American advisors to the Iraqi commander from Mosul, Abdul Amir. So there were a few occasions when you could travel with the commander for his meeting with his uh, counterparts, but that's different than embedding with the troops for weeks on end when you see the good, the bad, and ugly of what goes on in a war. And how difficult is it to really try to assess sort of the interests of the partner forces that you're with when you're writing a book like this? I mean, there's so many actors involved in the campaign against ISIS because some of our listeners might remember that it didn't just you know affect Iraq. It was also stretched out over into Syria, and you had all the actors involved in the S Syrian civil war that also had a stake in this fight. I mean, how difficult was that in terms of a reporting challenge? Well- all of this uh, stuff is difficult, and, and I was hardly the only person out there. There are all sorts of correspondents trying to ferret out what happened. What I did was oh, I spent six years unraveling the story in, all across the world in different bases and capitals to finally put it together, which is what makes the book unique. But, uh, you know, the American uh, advisors and coalition advisors, because they weren't all just, you know, America and the French were there, the British were there, uh, there are other European force elements there too. I mean, think of the challenge that they faced. Uh, first off, I don't think people realize the complexity of this. And sometimes generals call this a marbled war. I mean, just take the Iraqi forces. They're not one thing. There's the Iraqi army. There's the Iraqi counterterrorism service. There are the Iraqi federal police, the FedPol. They all report to different ministries. So the Americans had a role not only in advising these disparate force elements, but in helping them coordinate among themselves, which sometimes worked uh, better than others, but obviously it ultimately succeeded. Then let's look at the, uh, the Kurdish forces, the Iraqi, the Iraqi Kurdish forces, the Peshmerga. They're also divided into... I would say camps with different political alliances. There's the KDP camp, which was loyal to uh, President Barzani and Erbil. There was sort of the PUK camp, which was under the influence of the Talibani faction and Suleimania. They didn't all get along so well. And again, the Americans had to navigate between the two. A lot of that, by the way, was done clandestinely by special operations uh, community. Then let's look at Syria. Well, we didn't even have a, a partner in Syria when this thing began. Uh, there were different attempts to uh, create one, some of which would failed spectacularly. And in the end, uh, the partner that emerged was something called the Syrian Democratic Forces, the YPG Kurdish-led uh, militia uh, that uh, the U.S. Special Operations Community uh, mentored and developed. And so the task of the American advisors was not merely to guide these elements in battlefield tactics or to call in airstrikes. It was also, they were the glue that held this very variegated force together and enabled it to operate in some sort of synchronized manner. And one other actor that's present throughout the, the entire book are the Iranians, and Qasem Soleimani encountered 
U.S. military officers at various points, the late Qasem Soleimani, I should say, you know, what did that, those interactions reveal about the nature of the fight against ISIS? Well, they said a lot about the nature of the U.S.-Iranian relationship. And at the very beginning, remember, we're talking in 2014, the first country to come to the aid of the Iraqis was not the United States. It was the Iranians, unfortunately, for Washington. And they were quick to send arms and ammunition to the Kurds and to the Iraqis. And Qasem Soleimani was the paramilitary leader of the Quds Force, was on the battlefield uh, coordinating a lot of this. And uh, the U.S. came in a little later because they had a political requirement that Maliki be replaced, uh, which eventually happened. And he was replaced uh, by Prime Minister Abadi. Uh, But you had a situation in the first part of the campaign where you had Iranian elements, Qasem Soleimani, American advisors, American generals, all on the same battlefield, but not working together, but fighting against a common enemy, ISIS. And at that stage, pretty much what happened was uh, deconfliction. Uh, the Iranians uh, stayed out of the Americans' way and certainly didn't uh, initiate attacks against them through the militias they supported. The Americans stayed clear of the Iranians and tried to direct the forces we worked with away from them. But there were occasions when they bumped into each other almost literally on the battlefield. Well, one such occasion happened in 2015 when Abdul Amir, who was later the commander for the Mosul operation, brought uh, a visitor into the Joint uh, Command Center at Union 3, which is a headquarters across the street from the American embassy in the green zone in Baghdad. And he came face to face with Brigadier General Castelvi, a Marine officer who was leading a lot of it. I think it might have been a surprise to both men. And what was discussed then was no kind of cooperation, but just what the general situation on the battlefield was and who was there, because that was the uh, tenor of the uh, relationship then between the U.S. and Iran. But as the uh, campaign neared its end and as it became clear that ISIS uh, had been defeated, Iran changed its objectives and it was no longer to stay out of the American way and uh, fight against a common enemy. At that point, it was to support Shia militias in Iraq and in Syria and targeting American forces to try to push the Americans out. The Americans had done a lot of the heavy lifting and Iran wanted to reap the rewards. Well, this is a kind of shadow war that goes on to this day and is taking place um, under President Biden as well. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten 
in another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay and I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Throughout the, the book, you describe a lot of semantic games that a lot of U.S. policymakers seem to be playing. You have a whole section on the naming of the operation against ISIS, as you noted earlier, Operation Inherent Resolve, definitely a name that was made by a committee. And you also describe how commanders were able to hide troop numbers under different designations, such as temporary duty assignments. Why are those types of word games important to U.S. policymakers in a campaign like Operation Inherent Resolve? The history of the operation nomenclature is kind of interesting. Uh, when the Pentagon engages in a major war, it likes to have what it is called um, a named operation. And that's because um, it's much easier to direct and mobilize funds and approach the Congress for the many requirements that need to be met. If you have a named operation, if it's, it gives a sense of its importance. And so early on, the, the Pentagon uh, leadership was pushing to turn this advisory effort in Iraq into a named operation. And that posed some challenges because in the military, you can't simply name something. There are naming conventions. And in the case of the Central Command, which controls the Middle East, the names have to start with certain letters and they can only be so long. And in the initial effort I included candidates like, um, I think, Iraqi Unity. But what was happening in Iraq really showed Iraqi disunity. You had tensions between Shia and Sunnis, and the Shia oppression of the Sunnis is what made parts of Iraq a 
fertile recruiting ground for ISIS, be it as it may. Iraqi unity was one of the candidates, and none was Iraqi resolve, even though it was the lack of Iraqi resolve that led ISIS to take Mosul so easily in June 2014. Then somebody figured out that, well, this is an operation that's not just in Iraq, it's in Syria too, because you couldn't allow ISIS to have a sanctuary, and their capital was in Raqqa. So eventually it became inherent resolve, which uh, nobody really liked, they thought was sort of blah, but it, it certainly didn't offend anybody, and it, it, it was accurate in the sense that, uh, well, it wasn't inaccurate, and, and that was the name they settled with, but it didn't really fall tripping off the tongue. And I, I bet if you took a poll of Americans today and you said, uh, what's your opinion of inherent resolve, 99% of the public wouldn't know what you're talking about. But that indeed was the name of the operation against the Islamic State, which continues to this day. Even though the physical caliphate has been destroyed, we still have 2,500 troops in Iraq and about 900 in Syria. And they're all part of OIR, Inherent Resolve. So that's how that name came about. Uh, the troop caps, you know, we've talked about a little bit uh, before, but they were a mechanism for the, um, the White House to try to mitigate risk of American casualties and very often were regarded as an encumbrance uh, by the commanders. I mean, one example was toward the end of the uh, Obama administration, uh, the U.S. needed to shift some more forces into Syria, and then General Townsend wanted to put some Apache attack helicopters into Syria to support the coming offensive in Raqqa. The White House was apprehensive about putting forces, significant assets in Syria, and so a rule was established that there could be three heli American helicopters in Syria for 72 hours at any one time, and then they would have to go back to Erbil. Again, this reflected the kind of tensions between, um, well, the White House and the commanders, the White House trying to avoid a descent into what they feared would be a quagmire, the commanders trying to gain momentum and wrap up this campaign already that was dragging on for years. Some of these uh, sorts of um, constraints were erased when H.R. McMaster became the national security advisor uh, under President Trump, and they decided just to let the Pentagon figure out how it wanted to deploy its helicopters in, in uh, Syria. Oh, I want to move to that. I want to move to the transition between the Obama and Trump administrations. As you write in the book, the Obama administration was making decisions related to this campaign really up to almost the very last day of their administration. What was the situation towards the end of Obama administration? What was the status of the campaign against ISIS when the Trump administration took over? The campaign against ISIS was a campaign issue. Uh, people forget that, but it was. And then candidate uh, Trump uh, talked a lot about how when he got into the White House, he would take the gloves off. Uh, he would go after ISIS tooth and nail. He would bomb the heck out of them, except he didn't use the word heck. And his uh, contention was that somehow the Obama administration had been too weak in really dealing with this uh, terrorist foe. But the truth is, by the end of the Obama administration, U.S. advisors were on the battlefield. They had uh, sufficient latitude. Uh, they were accompanying partner forces. They didn't go right up to the front line. They would be back a little bit, but they were close enough. Uh, to get the job done under an edict um, issued by General Townsend Tactical Directive Number 1. They were directly calling in airstrikes. So all of the essential pieces were in place by the time Obama went office. And this contention uh, by Trump that he somehow unleashed the military on ISIS uh, is simply not true. What uh, President Trump did was he executed President Obama's strategy as he inherited it against ISIS, but uh, he also uh, engaged in less micromanagement of it, less oversight of it. So there were fewer meetings. In fact, there were probably no meetings about, you know, how many should we put here? How many should we put there? Uh, how many helicopters can we have in Syria? 
And as a consequence of that, one of the ironies is what Trump really did was he executed the Obama strategy, but sometimes more efficiently than Obama himself, because the rules of engagement were not changed. I talked to lots of military commanders about it. There was no change in the rules of engagement from Obama to Trump. What did change was the degree of oversight in Washington, and that enabled the Pentagon and the military to make more decisions on their own, with one huge exception. On two occasions, Trump ordered U.S. troops out of Syria only to reverse himself, which was a degree of impulsiveness that created all sorts of obstacles in the final chapter of the campaign. I want to ask you about one incident, which is the Eddie Gallagher sort of saga, if you will. And for those who don't remember, he was a U.S. Navy SEAL, accused but ultimately acquitted of stabbing an ISIS prisoner. What did that sort of whole, I don't know if you'll call it like a like a PR blow up or that entire trial, how did that sort of turn the attention of the American public to U.S. special forces in Iraq in this campaign against ISIS and, and sort of give us some more context for what let's say Gallagher's unit was doing there and how this sort of fits, this whole story fits into the broader campaign. Uh, there's an entire book written about that by um, a New York Times uh, reporter. Uh, but the kind of abuses that were chronicled in there and indifference to Iraqi life and uh, derogation from proper procedures of the soft community are the exception, not the rule. And uh, the main story about special operations in this war is much of this war was a special operations war. In fact, the entire strategy in Syria was devised by the Delta Force uh, by a guy named Chris Donahue, who was um, then a, was a colonel uh, who deployed very early to Iraq. He had been there in February 2014 and seen for himself that things were going south and made plans for when the U.S. inevitably would have to go back. And very early on, uh, after the fall of Mosul, when he was in northern Iraq, he had a meeting that was brokered by um, Kurdish um, officials in Suleimania. And it was with a guy the U.S. really didn't know before, uh, General Mazloum, who later became head of the Syrian Democratic Forces. And so this whole idea of working with this Syrian element and using them to prevent uh, volunteers, well, ISIS volunteers, from coming to Iraq and Syria uh, to join the fray and ultimately to take the fight to Raqqa was uh, put together um, by Chris Donahue, the Delta Force, and General Mazloum. It had a code name. It was called Talon Anvil. And the idea is you would go to the Euphrates and then swing south to Raqqa. As it turned out, it was uh, adjusted a bit by other elements of the administration. And the reason Donahue is an interesting figure is he later became more famous as the last man out in Kabul when he was the commanding general of the 82nd Airborne. And then he later led um, the 82nd Airborne to Poland when uh, the U.S. was bulking up on the periphery of NATO as a consequence of the impending Russian aggression in Ukraine. And now he's the 18th Airborne Corps three-star general in Europe, who's really supporting a lot of this effort to um, train and equip Ukrainian forces and also to have a solid U.S. Uh, deterrent in, in Eastern Europe. And he is much more representative of uh, what the special operations community can do and did in this conflict than any Gallagher is. So speaking of Russia, I definitely have to ask you about the Wagner Group incident that happened in February of 2018 in Iraq. Take us into the room with U.S. commanders in Baghdad and at Al-Udaid who were, who were supposedly on the line with Russian commanders as this, as this was happening. Maybe recount the event for us. The Russians deployed to Syria. What happened was as uh, Syrian President Bashar al Assad was, his control of the country was beginning to ebb. Uh, Qasem Soleimani, who would later be um, killed by the Trump administration as he was leaving the Baghdad airport in a drone attack that was not all that far from his 
Union 3 meeting with General Castelvi years earlier, uh, Soleimani went to Moscow and he made common cause with the Russians and something had to be done to bulk up Assad. And so the Russians began to flow forces to Syria. And what the Russians did in Syria was a lot more successful than what they're doing in Ukraine. It was primarily an Air Force effort, modest footprint on, on the ground, but some footprint. And this led to all sorts of challenges, which continue to this day for the U.S. in deconflicting operations in Syria, because the U.S. had its war against ISIS. The Russians and the Assad regime weren't really fighting ISIS. They were primarily fighting the uh, uh, Syrian elements that were resisting Assad's kind of brutal control of that country. But these forces had to be kept apart, including in the skies over Syria. This was largely a successful effort, but there was an occasion in February 2018 where there was a a clash in eastern Syria. And this didn't come as a surprise to the U.S. Special Operations Forces in the area. They saw that there was a um, force gathering, that they had heavy weapons, artillery, vehicles, and the like, that there were acting as if they intended to move east into areas that were controlled by the U.S. and their uh, Syrian partners, Syrian Democratic Forces. They didn't know exactly who they were, but through signals intelligence, they knew they were speaking Russian. One day they began to attack, and while this, the U.S. carried out um, the forces in eastern Syria, they issued some warnings, they delivered some artillery strikes. They hoped they would turn around, but they didn't turn around. There were phone calls made on a deconfliction line between American generals in Baghdad and and, uh, Al-Adid and Qatar and their uh, Russian counterparts. And their uniformed Russian military said, hey, we don't know anything about these guys. They're in ours. We don't know what this all was. And over the course of several hours, through uh, extensive use of air power, uh, the U.S. killed uh, a couple of hundred Russian citizens. Uh, the exact number you know, was actually unknown until uh, Secretary Pompeo uh, mentioned it in his confirmation hearing. Until then, it was considered classified. He said several hundred Russians had been killed. And we now know that these were members of the Wagner Group, which is a Russian paramilitary contractor organization that's now operating in Ukraine and is controlled by an ally of Vladimir Putin. Now, it strains credulity to think that the Russian government and the Russian military didn't know who these guys were, but that was the posture they took at the time. And after many of them were killed, the uh, Russian military actually asked for a pause in the battle so they could go and retrieve the bodies. But this was uh, an operation that appeared intended to gain control of some of the oil and gas fields in eastern Syria. This was a force that the Kremlin could disown if things went poorly. And the Pentagon did more or less pretend that it had nothing to do with it. In fact, when um, H.R. McMaster later met with his counterpart, um, Patrushev, who's still playing the role of national security advisor in Moscow, neither man mentioned this episode. But uh, it was really an extraordinary event because for the first time really since, well, really since the end of the Cold War and probably during it, the U.S. had killed several hundred Russian citizens in a pitch battle, uh, but both side capitals were willing to turn the page on it and go forward. And uh, there has not been a significant confrontation, uh, not a lethal one. Uh, between U.S. and Russian forces in Syria since then. I mean, it really is uh, an extraordinary episode. And there's a lot. There's a lot more we could we could talk about, but I want to move to the Biden administration. And you mentioned earlier Brett McGurk, who was in the Obama administration, is now head of the Middle East on the Biden NSC. There's a ton of other people. Lloyd Austin, you mentioned earlier. Antony Blinken was Joe Biden's vice president, then Vice President Biden's national security advisor. Now. Secretary of State, obviously. What do you think they, those people who served in both administrations, what sort of lessons do you think they took away from the from the counter ISIS campaign? It's clear that the Biden administration is not going to make the same mistakes as the Obama administration by withdrawing 
uh, American forces from Iraq. Now, granted, President Obama had the misfortune of dealing with Prime Minister Maliki, who was a tough customer. It was a difficult person to negotiate with, but uh, there's no talk of removing the 2,500 U.S. troops in Iraq or the 900 in Syria at this time. If that were to happen, it would create a bit of a security vacuum and that the Russians and the Iranians and various militias and perhaps the Turks and other elements um, might exploit. And it would also might unsteady the Iraqi forces who are still contesting with small bands of ISIS fighters and remnants of the caliphate. And they're still fighting and skirmishing going on to this day, although the caliphate's destroyed. So that seems to be one lesson that uh, Biden learned. It's clear that Biden is trying to avoid, to the extent possible, a direct confrontation with Iran in this area. And both sides have been careful of as late. But during the Biden administration, there have been a number of instances in which Iranian-backed militias have fired drones or rockets at U.S. troops. The U.S. has responded with airstrikes, so they've been careful to do them in such a way that would uh, reduce the risk of not only of civilian casualties, by, but also enemy casualties. And there was um, an episode where uh, the Iranians had directed an attack at the al Tamf garrison, which is in southeast Syria. And it wasn't really in response to anything the U.S. did. It was in response to an Israeli airstrike that had killed several Iranian Quds Force members or IRGC personnel. And apparently what the Iranians were trying to do is put the pressure on the Americans to put the pressure on the Israelis to rein in some of their airstrikes against Iranian assets in Syria. So they carried out a drone attack against this garrison. The U.S. had seen it coming and it pulled its personnel. And so no Americans were hurt. And then the issue arose, well, what should the Biden administration do about it? And they pondered a number of possibilities, including carrying out military action of their own in response to the Iranian drone attack. But uh, because no Americans have been hurt, the White House sent written guidance to Lloyd Austin saying that the Pentagon had to ensure that no enemy was hurt, uh, which is a pretty high standard when you're dropping bombs in a, a foreign country. And they looked at a few targets, bombing a building that had been hit before, bombing a training area where no one would be thought to be present in the middle of the night. In the end, they decided not to respond militarily, but to send a message to Iran through the Iraqi prime minister, now Qadami, saying, hey, watch it. We'll reserve the right to respond at a time of our choosing. Uh, the, the bottom line is President Biden's been pretty careful and cautious about confronting Iran in uh, Syria and Iraq. And recently, the Iranians have been a bit uh, restrained as well. But there's always the potential for things to flare up there. And it's it's something that the Pentagon's trying to avoid as it pivots towards China and Russia. And I think which both sides are trying to avoid a little bit as they negotiate over uh, possibly restoring the 2015 JCPOA nuclear deal. But the risk of that is always there. I just have a, a few last questions for you. And I want to pick up on one thing that you that you just said, which is a, it's clear the Biden administration is not going to be withdrawing troops from Iraq anytime soon. But as we know, we're approaching the one-year anniversary of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Why do you think the U.S. succeeded in its campaign against ISIS in Iraq and Syria, but almost pretty much completely failed in Afghanistan? I think you'd have to count Afghanistan as a strategic failure. I think General Milley put it that way. And I think that's pretty obvious. I mean, after 20 years of conflict, the U.S. pulled out and the force that it trained and equipped at enormous expense uh, faltered. And whether you think the Afghan war was worth it or not, the way in which the U.S. left that country, I think, uh, uh, was extremely problematic and led to a very difficult situation for number of people in Afghanistan who were worked with the Americans. Iraq was different for a, a variety of reasons, and Operation Inherent Resolve was different. And I spent some time trying to figure out why that might be. 
And I think there are a couple of factors. One, the partners we worked with in Iraq, for all of their limitations and all of their problems, the Iraqi security forces, the Kurdish Peshmerga, the Syrian Democratic Forces, they're not perfect, but they had a degree of credibility on the local stage with populations in the area that uh, the Afghan government didn't always uh, have with its own uh, population. So you have to have a credible partner. I think that's one factor. I think another difference was that in the Afghan conflict, uh, the U.S. never solved the problem of an enemy sanctuary. I mean, throughout all those years, uh, the Taliban were always able to go and Al-Qaeda to, to Pakistan and to some of the ungoverned areas there where they would be out of reach of U.S. forces. They had a sanctuary. Well, ISIS didn't have a sanctuary. From the start, President Obama, to his credit, uh, understood that airstrikes would have to be carried out in Syria against ISIS targets. Uh, and, you know, the capital was in Raqqa. And they launched the campaign to push to Mosul out of Syria. And also, eventually, put um, U.S. Special Operations Forces there, the Delta Force, which was known as Task Force 9, and the 5th Special Forces Group to augment the U.S. numbers, which was known as Task Force 9.5. And so the U.S. did what it had to do to eliminate ISIS's sanctuary in Syria. It never was able to do that throughout all those long years in Afghanistan. As we wrap up here, a lot of foreign policy and national security analysts sort of look at a counterterrorism campaign as, you know, becoming sort of more irrelevant. People think more about now, quote unquote, great power competition, the rise of China, obviously Russia's invasion in Ukraine. Does a military campaign like OIR have any relevance for future military operations in the Middle East or elsewhere? So I cover the Pentagon now and military operations and activities uh, for the Wall Street Journal. And in 2018, the Pentagon put out a a new national defense strategy that portrayed China and Russia as the principal dangers to uh, future American security and the ongoing fights against militants and terrorists in the Middle East is a lesser concern. And the Biden administration is basically accepting that. It's about to publish its own national defense strategy. Uh, one of the principal differences is it elevates China, is treated as a higher, a great, much greater concern than Russia. But it, by and large, it accepts this formula. But this still leaves the question of what are we going to do about uh, the Middle East? And what are we going to do about these regions in the world in which there are ungoverned spaces where militants and terrorist groups can arise in the future? And one of the unique features about uh, the counter-ISIS campaign is, well, we had by, with, and through. We had small groups of advisors accompanying much larger partner forces, which they enabled by calling in airstrikes, by providing them with intelligence, by helping them with logistics. And what it showed is a really small group of Americans and coalition forces, because other nations were there too, can have a a very powerful effect on the battlefield if you lash them up with air power, with intelligence, what's called ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, and put it all together. You don't need to deploy tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of troops to come up against a militant foe. In fact, I don't think there's the political support in the White House or in the American population to send tens of thousands of troops to these Middle East battlefields again. So if and when there are new dangers in the Middle East, uh, the American response is likely to be some variation of the strategy that was employed against ISIS. It's likely to involve small teams of Americans connected with air power, armed with intelligence, helping partners with logistics. And we're carrying this out right now on a, in Somalia on a, on a small scale. But it could be applied on, on, on a, a larger scale if there was a future contingency that required it. So I think one lesson of um, the operation against ISIS was it provided us with a template for how to go 
taking on militant threats in the region should they arise again without sending lots of troops there so we could continue to uh, make China and Russia uh, the main effort, at least in terms of deterring conflict. Also, I think there, there are possible lessons here even outside the Middle East, I mean, it, I mean, if you look what's going on in Ukraine now, well, we're not sending advisors along with Ukrainian forces, and we're not carrying out the airstrikes. But you could argue that we're carrying out an attenuated version of by, with, and through. We're providing the Ukrainians with intelligence. We're providing them with munitions. We're providing them with um, modern weapons. We are training them, the U.S. And, and the West. We trained them in Ukraine for years through the 10th Special Forces Group and National Guard units. We're training them in Europe now. So uh, even though it's we're not on the battlefield there, it is a sort of a scaled-back version of by, with, and through. And you could argue that that approach has some utility when the foe is a nuclear-armed peer competitor like Russia. So I think there are lessons to be learned uh, from um, uh, the conflict against ISIS in terms of preparing for future conflicts in the Middle East and elsewhere, and in terms of some great power conflict scenarios. And one thing that's really striking to me, and a bit disappointing, I think, is that, uh, you know, this is the anniversary of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, as you noted, and there are any number of lesson learned reports coming out. The Pentagon's doing one. The Congress are doing them. That was a conflict that was a strategic failure. Well, here we have a conflict that was, um, by any reasonable standard, a success. Not perfect. Too many civilian casualties. Some things weren't done right. But all in all, it was a strategic success. Well, who's studying the lessons of that? The Pentagon to this day has not done a comprehensive assessment of what went right and what went wrong in the fight against ISIS and has not done its own history of the conflict. There have just been disparate efforts. There's a RAND Corporation study of the air war. Ash Carter did a, a study of uh, the role he played in making some of the important decisions. There are a few army efforts here and there about this or that battle, but there's no U.S. government assessment of a conflict that in which it did succeed and which has some um, lessons for the future. Well, you've definitely convinced me that there should be one. And unfortunately, we barely scratched the surface of this book. And I wish we had another two or three hours. And I'm sure our listeners do too, but we're going to have to leave it there. Michael, congratulations on this book. And thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for the opportunity. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.